we're, uh, we're back for a third time for the study and reprobation, but we're for sure going to wrap things up tonight, and this will really conclude our study tonight. We'll conclude our, our larger study on the doctrine of election, pretty much, if we, as we've been exploring various facets of what the Bible says about election and things related. Uh, and then it's pretty soon after, as we move on to the next subject, it will be dealing with the atonement, issues of the atonement, and then very eventually into... If you've heard of limited atonement versus unlimited atonement, that's the next thing up to up to a deck here in this Doctrines of Grace study. So that's all coming up pretty soon. But tonight we're back to finish this topic, which is like a subtopic under election on reprobation. This lesson finishing on reprobation. And anytime you study the doctrine of election in Scripture, the concept of reprobation is going to come up and it needs to be addressed. You just don't want to like... Stick your head in the sand, pretend it doesn't exist, or skip over it. You need to tackle it and grapple with it. Although it's, I wouldn't call it a popular doctrine for most people. Uh, but the fact of God's election, even God's unconditional election, is very clear in Scripture. We've been studying that for months now. But there's an inescapable corollary to election. Scripture teaches that before the foundation of the world, God unconditionally chose some to inherit eternal life through grace, even though they deserve judgment. And that's an act of God's special love and, and his mercy that God chose to rescue these people whom the Bible calls the elect out of you know, the, the mass of perdition of mankind. But it, it just makes you ask, what about those people whom God didn't choose? He could have chosen them, right? He has the power to save all, right, if he wanted to. Or God could have created a world in which all people get saved. So no matter which angle you come from, the fact remains there's a lot of people who don't get saved and that just leads us to have some questions and God not choosing them and allowing them to perish God was making a decision about them he passed over these unelect and effectively sealing them in their doom and that's what reprobation is it refers to God's relationship to those who aren't elect and describes that relationship and we've been studying that what reprobation means in short in summary election may be defined as God's decision in eternity past to set his special love on some according to his free will and save them by his grace. And the flip side, reprobation, may be defined as God's decision in eternity past to pass over others, leaving them in their sinful state and punishing them justly for their sins. Reprobation, it is a biblical concept that needs to be explored because there's a lot of false views and misconceptions out there about reprobation. And so that's what we've been seeking to do for two weeks now. The primary text we've been looking at is in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 24. It's not the only text, but it does speak by far the most directly on the issue. And it's from this text we've been centering our study uh, around these three observations. And they're in your notes just by way of quick review. You know, God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. God's reprobation involves God hardening the wicked, and yet reprobation is not double predestination these are just really three simple observations from Romans 9 14 through 24 and all they do is they just, they're just giving us a framework around which to further study and explore and understand God's relationship to the unelect understand reprobation and so we've essentially spent you know, one week on point number one this a couple weeks ago and last week really on, on point number two uh, Covering uh, the God hardening the wicked. And I think we've we've spent enough time exploring those two points. Not really going to do much recap because at this point it would take up half the lesson just to recap all that we've covered so far. 
Uh, but for now, we're going to just move on and finish up with this third and final point, observation stemming from this passage. And then as we explore it, we learn. We learn about what the Bible does say about reprobation. And this third one is, is in the form of a negative. And you have just, I know it's a very simple note sheet this, this evening. It's really just a, a chance for you to take your own notes if you so desire. But reprobation is not double predestination. Now, obviously needs explaining, but in explaining it, we're going to learn a lot about what reprobation is and is not. And hopefully that helps us, like I said, understand it better. And so let's go back to this starting text, this primary passage we've been in, Romans 9. And if you haven't already, you can open to Romans chapter 9. And we've already pretty much made it through through verses 14 through 20 in our previous studies. We've looked at those verses at one point or another, and we've covered all that. We're back really to just focus on verses 21 through 24 in greater detail as they deal with this subject that, you know, really head on that we're going to be getting into tonight. So let's, let's read these again. Verse 21 through 24. He says in verse 21, Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he also called, not from among Jews also, but also from among Gentiles. Paul, of course, in the discussion after talking about God's election and how, you know, answering these objections is not fair, it's not just, he answers these, he uses Pharaoh as an illustration therein. Uh, In verses 19 through 20, he starts answering the objection of, of God's fairness. And in the short version is God is, he's the creator. It's his prerogative to do whatever he wants with this lump of clay, which is his creation. He's always fair and always just. But he, of course, does explain more about how God relates to the, the elect and the unelect in verses 21 through 24. And so verse 21, you know, he says, obviously picturing God as the potter, a, a common metaphor in scripture. He says, or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. Here it pictures God having a right over the clay. Exousia, the word for authority. God has authority over his creation. He has full rights and privileges over his creation to do as he pleases. One vessel is created for honorable use. Another for, it says for honor, literally. The other one is not for honor. But yeah, it just means a common use, a a vessel that's not intended for anything special. But the point is that both of these vessels, where do they come from? From the same lump of clay. There's one lump here, and and from these come two vessels with diverging destinies. One is made for honorable use, one is made for common use. And who's in charge of the lump of clay? Well, God's in charge. That's that's pretty clear, right? In verse 22, we get a a what-if question. this, This conditional, he says, what if God although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So here we have this what if, this hypothetical of God. Now what if he's willing to demonstrate his wrath and his power 
obviously in judgment, he's willing to, to judge these vessels of wrath immediately. But he doesn't. At first, he holds off his wrath and he shows patience to these, it says, vessels of wrath. They get some patience by which God displays his glory through his patience, even though they're prepared for destruction. Now, again, later tonight, we'll talk about this prepared for destruction part. So just save that for a second. But we are learning how God relates to these common vessels or those destined for dishonorable use. These vessels have been in one way or another prepared for destruction. In one way or another, because that's what it says. They've been prepared for destruction. How? We'll get there, but that, that's pretty clear. Just just what it says. Now, God, for these vessels of destruction, obviously this is referring to the unelect, to the unbeliever, to the lost, right? That's pretty clear. And God would be perfectly just to judge them immediately, right? Wouldn't you say? I mean, Adam and Eve, the second they fell, God could have judged them right then and there instantly, and, and punish them for their sin, and it would have been perfectly just to do so. And so it goes for all the lost and all the unelect. But, but God doesn't. God postpones his judgment in a, in a display of his patience. And why, why does God do this? Well, God's patience is magnified as he endures those who are in rebellion against him. That's what the verse is, is saying. They're, these are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And He's willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, but instead, for a time, shows his patience with these people for the sake of his glory. Now, why would God do this? He really answers in verse 23. Verse 23 says, And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Verse 23 makes clear this actually isn't a hypothetical. God God has done this. And God did this to make known his glory upon other vessels, vessels of mercy, who are, again, obviously the elect, the saved. As God shows grace and mercy to these vessels of mercy, and they see the contrast between themselves and and these other vessels of wrath who are are shown patience but, but not saving grace and mercy, well, they marvel and they magnify God's glory. Now, again, you have to wait. We'll save this whole prepared beforehand for glory phrase. We'll, we'll save that for a little bit later. But for now, what we learned so far actually is from these verses, we're, we get a peek into God's purpose in election and reprobation. Why does God choose to save some and, and not choose to save others? Why does he pass over others? In God's dealings with the elect and the unelect, those whom he chose, those whom he passed over in this passage, these two vessels from the same lump, They have two destinies, but in dealing with both, what is God's concern? His own glory. For both of them, he's concerned with his own glory. God does all things for his name's sake, and he's chiefly motivated by the magnification of his own glory, and rightly so. God is jealous for his name's sake because nothing is as worthy as God to be glorified. For God to worship anything else, for God to give glory to anything other than himself, that's idolatry. He would be giving glory to something less worthy, which is himself. For us to give glory to ourselves is idolatry. But not for God. He has to seek his own glory, uh, being the only object worthy of glory in the universe. So he does all things for his name's sake. This is, and I trust you know, all over the Bible. 
In fact, we've, we've even seen this before in our previous studies made explicit in connection to God's election. I'll read for you just by way of reminder what we learned in Ephesians 1. Verse 5 and 6 says that in love, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Why did God predestine us as sons? To the praise of the glory of his grace. He says it again, verse 11 in Ephesians 1, it says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Why did God predestine us according to his will? That we would be to the praise of his glory. And so it goes for all things. This is why God made the world and made us and does all things for his own name's sake. And we find here in Romans 9 that God is glorified in both these vessels of wrath and these vessels of mercy. God is glorified in the vessels of wrath because they enable God to display both his patience for a time and then later his power and his wrath. His justice is made known in these vessels and God is glorified in the display of all of his attributes. And likewise, God is glorified in in these vessels of mercy as they enable God to display his grace, mercy, and love. And they themselves glorify God for what they have received, namely mercy. So it's really, it's an important point. We we could have made this a sub-point or like a fourth point, namely like the purposes of God's election and reprobation is his glory. But it's an important point to make to know that God works in the elect and the unelect. These two lumps of clay, he's working in both for his own glory. He's doing all things for his own glory. If, if that troubles you, if, that, if that's hard for you to swallow, then you just have a, a small view of God and a big view of man. And you just need to go back and reread your Bible because God is supreme. He's the transcendent creator and we're the speck of dust. And he's worthy of this glory. And it's only right. And hopefully you kind of see that, that God is big and not small. Anyway, that's, that's kind of for another time. So we've already learned a little bit just in passing observation of these verses of God's purposes in election and reprobation, his dealings with the elect and unelect. However, how God works in the elect and unelect is different. He may have purposes. He may have a similar purpose in them both, namely, ultimately, his glory. But how he works in the elect and unelect is different. And this is where we, we need to talk and, and uh, by, by uh, introducing you to double predestination, learn a thing or two about how God re- uh, relates to the unelect. So let, let's do that now and talk about this, this notion I introduced, which I bet most of you have heard before, at least in passing, called double predestination. Now, you, like I said, you may have heard the term before. It just, it really, what's tricky about it is it comes down to definitions because there are, just, just to make things confusing, two definitions that are out there in the world of theology of double predestination. So depending on how you define it, it's, it's a good thing or a bad thing. But I'm going to try and hopefully make it clear for you. Now, when some people talk about double predestination, they really just mean reprobation, which we've been studying. 
And in that case, it's biblical. We've been talking about reprobation. We do believe the Bible teaches reprobation, God passing over the unelect. And if that's what someone means by a double predestination, then, then so be it. Does God ordain the fate of the elect and the unelect? Yes, that's inescapable. As Martin Luther himself put it, there's an inescapable logic that in the act of choosing some for eternal life and not others, God was really sealing the fate of both groups since you can't save yourself. In other words, God, he chose the elect for eternal life. God passed over the unelect, leaving them to judgment. But realize in God, in in just passing them over, he's still making a choice. He's still making a choice about them and, and not choosing them. He had the power to choose them. He could have intervened and saved them if he had wanted to and, and chosen them, but he chose not to. And that's a form of a choice. And so in this sense, we can speak of God ordain, <clears throat> excuse me, ordaining the fate of the elect and the unelect. That's, that's just reprobation. That's, that's all we've been talking about. And sometimes, you know, if you're reading, someone will be talking about double predestination and this is what they mean. And, and so be it. Then, then yes, we believe in double predestination, that God is in control of the destinies of the elect and unelect. That is true. However, that being said, most of the time, that's not how people are defining or talking about double predestination. They mean something else. So that, that's what we're really going to spend the rest of our time talking about. Most people, when they think of double predestination, they think of something as the exact opposite of reprobation. They think that election and reprobation are, are parallel, they're symmetrical, and, and that is false. So again, I'll, I'll explain, so just stay with me, I know this, this will be a, maybe a stretch for some of you tonight if you've never heard this before, but just t- stay with me. So typically when people speak of double predestination, they mean in their minds that God works in the elect and the unelect in the exact same way, that what God does for the elect he does for the unelect in just an opposite fashion. So just equal yet opposite. <clears throat> so for the elect, what did God do? Well, in eternity past, he decreed some to election, whereby he would draw them to salvation. God would work in them monergistically. Remember that word just means by himself, of himself. And he would regenerate them. He would produce faith in their hearts. And he would bring them to salvation as a divine work. That's election. And so they reason, well, for the unelect, God must do the opposite. So God decreed some to damnation, where he would draw them to damnation. God would monergistically work in them, and you could say degenerate them, producing unbelief in their hearts, making them unbelievers, basically, so that he could judge them according to his divine plan. So you can see some conceive of double predestination where What God does for the unelect is just the exact opposite he does for the elect. Just as God unconditionally chooses some for eternal life, so he unconditionally chooses others for eternal death. Some people, they're just just made for destruction. That's why he made them, just to populate hell, basically. God created them for the sole purpose of destroying them for his glory. They're a vessel of wrath, and that's their only purpose in life, and so forth. Election is a positive decree of God which includes his, his work of intervening in the life to, of the elect to bring them to faith. And they reason reprobation or, or double predestination is just the exact opposite, that God intervenes in their life to fulfill this negative decree of damnation and to basically 
make them an unbeliever, to bring unbelief in their hearts that they, that they would be damned uh, per, his, per his will and he'd be glorified in his justice. So if, if you're with me, that's how some people define double predestination. Just think of election in the exact opposite. But this is where I at least would differ and reject this view and, and see it as, as false and as wrong. And we'll spend a little time pointing out the error of this version of double predestination. And by doing so, it, it sheds more light on what reprobation really means, how God really relates to the unelect. And that's our whole goal here, just to understand how God relates to those who are not chosen, those who are the unelect. You hear this about reprobation, or you hear this version of double predestination. You might sound, you might think it's, it sounds like the logical corollary to election. Like, well, it's just the opposite. That makes sense. God does the exact opposite to the elect. But that's not taught in Scripture. Reprobation is not pictured as being just the opposite of election. God's decree of reprobation, not pictured as the opposite of election. These are not equal but opposite decisions. There are some differences which need to be explained, so we're going to do that. First off, that this view of double predestination that we were just talking about, that's never taught in Scripture. That, that's the first big problem. You never get this picture where God is hes depicted as actively working sin and unbelief into the hearts of, of the unelect. That, that's never seen to be the case. In addition, that this view would seem to make God the author of sin, where he, he's punishing people for doing what he made them do. He makes them unbelievers. He makes them sinners. And now he's punishing them for being sinning unbelievers. That, that really does seem like it would make God the author of, of evil. But God is not evil. He does not do evil. He does not make men evil. He doesn't make men do evil. James 1.13 says God doesn't even tempt men to do evil. And that's important to remember. God doesn't make people into sinners. He doesn't make people and create them evil. You have to get the difference between God using evil and ordaining evil, between God doing evil or causing evil. And there's a difference. God does use evil, and he has even ordained evil for his glory, for his purposes. But he does not do evil or cause us to do evil. We'll talk in a little bit about how God brings about evil through his ordained plan without causing it. But understand this, this notion of double predestination, there's no like biblical warrant for it. As a side note, it's, it's also not the reformed position of reprobation. It's essentially rejected by all Calvinists. You look at all the historic confessions of, of reformed teaching, and they all just reject that notion of double predestination while upholding what we've talked about as reprobation. You may have heard that, hey, didn't like Martin Luther believe in double predestination? And he used the term, and he did, but he didn't define it like this. Again, that's what makes it confusing, that he did not teach this. Uh, he taught really just reprobation. And so this, this view of double predestination, it's, it's typically just a caricature used against Calvinists, or sometimes held by people called hyper-Calvinists, if you heard that term, that they might actually teach something like this, uh, but we do not. Instead, now just to sharpen our focus on the right view of reprobation, to clarify that God's decision concerning the elect and unelect, they're not parallel, they're not symmetrical, they're asymmetrical. 
So that, that's the key word here, asymmetrical, God's decision regarding the elect and the unelect. They're not, they're not the same. They're not equal and opposite. They're asymmetrical. These are different decisions. So for the elect, again, what did God do? Well, in eternity past, he decreed some to election, whereby God would draw them to salvation. God would monergistically work in them, regenerating them, producing faith in their hearts to bring them to salvation per his divine will. So for election, God, he actively chooses and then he actively intervenes to make them a believer. This is God's sovereignty and salvation. But for the unelect, what does God do? Well, in eternity past, God decided to pass over the unelect and to withhold his saving grace. But instead, just leave them in their sin, which would be the means of their own destruction. But God did not make them evil, nor did he create unbelief in their hearts. He did not make them into unbelievers just to be damned to fill his plan. So see the distinction between how God relates to the elect and unelect. For the elect, God actively chooses them and he actively intervenes in their lives. And to bring the elect to salvation, God must regenerate them and, and, and create faith in their hearts. But this is not how God interacts with the unelect, either in eternity past or in present. Like we said, even in passing over the unelect, God was still making a choice. He chose not to save them. And, and so this is why we can still speak of God ordaining the unelect uh, that they would not be saved. He's still sovereign over the decision. It was still his decision. So this is why we can speak of him as ordaining their condemnation. But he's not making them unbelievers just in the way he makes us believers. right? You understand how God regenerates us. And, and we'll, we'll actually learn more about his work to draw us to salvation. He doesn't do that with the unelect to draw them to unbelief. It cannot be said that God created people evil just to send them to hell. God does not work sin, unbelief, or evil in their hearts to ensure their destruction. Rather, like we've been saying, God merely passes them by, passes sinners by, leaving them to their own sin, unbelief, and evil, which, which damns them by itself. People send themselves to hell. Even though God has ordained it, they're still responsible for their own sin, evil, and unbelief, and their own condemnation. A big part of the misunderstanding here is, especially among critics of God's sovereignty and salvation, is that they approach the whole discussion picturing that God views humanity as good. He views people as good. In other words, you know, God, he looks forward, he sees humanity, and he sees humanity as, as neutral or good. And so think back to this lump of clay, one lump of clay. This is all of humanity. And they picture God seeing this as, as a neutral lump of clay, or even good. You know, he made it, so you have a good lump of clay. And so to think that God would, you know, divide up the clay and this part's saved and this part, well, they won't be saved, even though they were just perfectly good lump of clay, that seems terrible. That seems unjust. That seems not fair that God would fashion this half lump of clay for, at least not for salvation. How could God take some good people and make them bad? make them unbelievers just so that he can condemn them for his glory. Like Romans 9 says, that, that just seems wrong. Well, that is wrong. But their problem is that they think that God is viewing humanity as good. But he doesn't. He, he's viewing humanity in his, his acts of election and reprobation in a fallen state, as, as a fallen lump of clay. This is not a good lump of clay, but 
He's already viewing this as a fallen lump of clay, so to speak. And so in the decisions of election and reprobation to choose to pass over, God was dealing with all of man as a fallen group. But God knew humanity would fall. God planned that humanity would fall as part of his plan. Inescapable, right? We've talked about this. And his decisions of election and reprobation then concerned fallen humanity. So to God, the lump of clay to begin with is all bad. It all deserves to be thrown out. The whole lump of clay deserves to be you know, put in the furnace or whatever, to be cast aside as, as useless or, or evil. The whole thing is worthy of being thrown out. Man has already been made evil by their own devices. God didn't make people evil. He didn't make them unbelievers. They've done that to themselves uh, per the fall and the consequences thereafter. Rather, if anyone's to be saved out of this fallen lump of clay, what God must do is intervene. He does not have to intervene to make the clay evil. It already is. But he does have to intervene if he's to save any part of the clay and make it good. And that's what God does. In election, he's choosing a chunk of the clay for his honorable purposes to be set aside. And in time, he will regenerate, make this clay alive and draw it to himself. That's how he actively works in the elect. But he does not do that with the unelect to actively make them evil and unbelievers. This reprobation, those he passes over as we've studied, does no injustice to the unelect. Because again, he's not dealing with good people. The, the clay is evil. And God is free to show mercy on some. He's free to choose some to, to receive mercy. But those who are passed over and they're condemned... They're just getting what they deserve, purely fair and just treatment. They're being judged for their own sin, which they chose, their own unbelief, which they chose. God didn't make them sin. He may harden their hearts as they choose sin and rebellion. We spent all last week talking about that. But that, too, comes by God's refusal to intervene and change them. So, I hope this is becoming a little more clear that why we speak of election and reprobation, not equal, but but asymmetrical. These are different acts or decrees or decisions in the mind of God. They're not parallel. And back to Romans 9, this is actually supported in the text. So let's go back to Romans 9. These two verses, 22 and 23. You see these two phrases that, that catch your eye, of course, right? Verse 22 the subject or, or the object is these, it says at the end, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. You see that? And then verse 23, vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And of course, back in verse 21, these, bo- these vessels, the word vessel is used. We're talking about the lump of clay, right? And so these two vessels are coming from the lump of clay. So we have one bunch of vessels prepared for destruction. Another bunch, it says that God prepared beforehand for glory. But notice some differences here. Verse 22, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Katartizo, to prepare, to set up, to establish. The unelect, it says, were prepared. They were set up for destruction. By whom? The text doesn't say. It doesn't give us the object. Of that verb. In fact, it's in the passive. They were prepared for destruction. It doesn't tell us who's who's acting on them to prepare them. 
Notice the passage in verse 22. It doesn't say God prepared them for destruction. It doesn't say that. It doesn't not say that. We're just left to wonder. Is God preparing the unelect for destruction? Are they preparing themselves for destruction? The text doesn't say, but just, you know, keep that in mind. Hold that thought. But notice the difference, though, with verse 27. Vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Seems similar, but we actually have a different word here. Proetomizo, to make ready, to prepare beforehand. In the New Testament, this word is equivalent to for, you know, predestinate. Here we have a different word used, and it's in the active voice. It's not passive. This is a different word in the active, where God is the explicit subject. Notice verse 22. It doesn't say that God is preparing them for destruction. It, it just doesn't say. Verse 23, you see where it says, these vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Here we have a, a different word where God is shown as actively preparing these vessels beforehand for glory. God is clearly intervening beforehand to prepare them for glory. And notice the asymmetry here. This is the definition of asymmetry. We have in these two verses both the elect and unelect mentioned. Both of these groups are being prepared for their destinies, but in different ways. The the elect are actively being prepared beforehand by God for glory. Very explicit. The unelect are not spoken of as being actively prepared by God beforehand for wrath. The fact that Paul uses two different verbs with different meanings here is, is significant. If Paul wanted to teach double predestination, that God predestines some people to hell in the same way he predestines some people to heaven, if he wanted to teach that, this is his chance, use the same verb, use it in the same way, he could have done that. But the fact that he doesn't, and uses a different verb for God's relation to the elect and unelect. For the elect, the specific meaning to prepare beforehand, actively, is enough to suggest that this asymmetrical view that God is not doing this for the unelect, that he's not actively preparing them beforehand for destruction. Then who is? And I think we've actually already studied this and learned from, for example, Romans 1, that the unelect themselves are preparing themselves for destruction. Remember back in Romans 1, verse 18. You can flip there real quick. It's just a few pages away. Where he gets into the main, you know, body of, of teaching how all are, all are lost. All are sinners before God. There are none good. There are none righteous. And so to begin with, he says... Remember last week we talked about this key word of wrath. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against whom? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Who's God's wrath for? It's for the wicked, for the rebellious, for the unbelieving sinner. God's wrath is not for the good person. Or the one whom God decided to make evil into a vessel of wrath. The picture that we learned already in Romans 1 is that sinners prepare themselves for destruction by their own sin and belief. And here, just tapping into all we learned about Pharaoh, that's exactly what he did. 
He prepared himself for destruction as he hardened his own heart. This was God's ordained will. He ordained it, but, but Pharaoh was the, the instrument of his own demise. As he hardened himself, chose sin and rebellion and unbelief, worshiping other gods and so forth. In God's plan, he allowed for this to happen, and he used Pharaoh for his purposes, as he does all people. But God is not the doer of evil, nor is he creating these people as unbelievers just to send them to hell. That, that is a false view of God and reprobation. God is not punishing people for something he's making them do or punishing them as unbelievers, even though he made them unbelievers. To put this another way, getting, you know, bear with me, slightly more technical, you could put it this way, that God, he is the efficient cause of the salvation of the elect, but he's not the efficient cause of the damnation of the unelect. I'll explain that, but I'll say it again. God is the efficient cause of the salvation of the elect, but he's not the efficient cause of the damnation of the unelect. Rather, their own sin and unbelief is the efficient cause of their damnation. God has ordained, therefore, their destruction by a secondary cause. God predestines the unelect not to sin and to disobedience, but to the condemnation that arises from sin and disobedience. Like Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sins shall die. That's what God ordained. The soul that sins shall die. And in their sin and unbelief, which they chose, they condemn themselves. They prepare themselves for destruction. God's reprobation or his withholding grace from the elect is not the cause of their damnation. Do you get that? God withholding his grace is not the cause of their damnation. Him passing them over, that's not why they're damned. Their sin is the cause of their damnation. Their own unbelief is the cause. And they condemn themselves. So hopefully an illustration to help you. You've got a sick person, a man, he's been poisoned, he's dying, it's going to kill him. The doctor, maybe he's got, you know, like a rattlesnake bite or a snake bite out in the wilderness. Doctor has the antivenom and he, he rushes out to him to meet him, to administer, to save his life. But he doesn't get there in time. And the man dies. So what is the cause of his death? What is the efficient, the primary cause of his death? It's the poison. It's the, 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 the venom. The lack of the doctor is a secondary cause, but it's not the efficient cause. It's not why the man died. It was part of the circumstances of his death, but it's not the efficient or primary cause. Likewise, for the lost, their own sin and unbelief is the efficient cause, the primary cause of their death. God not intervening is merely the secondary cause. God is not unfair or unjust not to intervene because in this case, the sick patient deserves to die. They deserve judgment because they have chosen not merely like a passive snake bite, but they've chosen rebellion and sin and unbelief against their creator. And for God not to show up in time, so to speak, merely just. He's merely showing them justice and wrath and power by which he's magnified. So this, admittedly, it's a lot to cover, a lot to take in. Uh, but to just finish things up and yet further support and hopefully further clarify this asymmetrical view that God's dealings with the elect and unelect are different. They're asymmetrical. 
Let's, let's finish here with a couple more passages to, to fill this in and, and show more. And uh, Matthew 25, why don't you turn there real quick. Here's, here's a passage that you've heard, but you probably haven't thought about this before. It's just a, it's a subtle thing, but it's worth pointing out. Very interesting, Matthew 25, turn there. You know, Matthew 25, it's the sheep and the goats judgment. Christ is teaching in the... Uh, all of a discourse here. And he pictures, as the Son of Man returns, the nations are gathered before him. You have believers, unbelievers, the elect, unelect. The believers gathered on his right, and they will inherit what? The kingdom and eternal life. Unbelievers, the goats, the unelect, gathered on his left. And what do they get? Destruction, judgment, right? Yeah. But notice, notice the difference. Believers inherit the kingdom. It's really significant. Verse 34. He's putting the sheep on the right. And it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he keeps going, but just notice that that phrase. What do they get? They inherit a kingdom prepared for who? For them. From the foundation of the world. This is the elect. God chose them. Lump of clay. Didn't deserve it. Cut them off. Made them his own. Created a kingdom just for them. And they inherit it by his grace. For his glory. You get that? But notice how things are different with the goats. It's, it's not the same. Look down at verse 41. <clears throat> now he talks to those on his left. These are the unelect, the unbelievers, the goats. It says, then he will also say to those on his left... Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. What's the difference? The the elect believers, let's just simplify, they get heaven, heaven, the kingdom, prepared for them. The unelect, unbelievers, they lost, they get hell. Wasn't prepared for them. He doesn't say prepared for you. He says prepared for Satan and demons. Hell and the lake of fire, if you didn't know, this verse teaches us it was actually prepared, created as judgment for Satan and demons. This is a subtle difference, but it's enough actually to show that how God, again, deals with the saved and unsaved is not the same. And how he conceives of them and their destinies and determines their destinies is not quite the same. The, The hell was not originally prepared for the unelect. It goes to show, at least in the mind of God, it's still part of his plan. That's, that's unavoidable. But he did not create people just to populate hell. He did not make these people just to fill up hell and be glorified in their judgment. He is glorified in judgment. His wrath is made known. His power is made known. We just read that in Romans. But that's not why he made these people. They're being judged uh, for their own sin. In reality, God doesn't need to decree their judgment that these people, they've damned themselves. And, and why are they being cast into eternal destruction? He goes on, it's for their own sin. For their own sin, rebellion, unbelief, and so forth. What God has decreed is that the soul that sins will die. That's unconditional. And people, though, they conditionally condemn themselves. No one is condemned that doesn't deserve it. So, like I said, a subtle little observation you might not think twice of, but... 
we have the similar terms actually for prepared. We talk about vessels of wrath prepared and then prepared beforehand. We have similar verbiage here of being prepared for you, this kingdom prepared for you. Uh, but that difference is, is significant. Now, one more passage uh, found in Revelation chapter 13. Chapter 13, and then we'll get to Revelation 20. So a couple more, and we'll finish here. So let's finish up in Revelation 13. Here's another passage. Talking about in times we're in the tribulation, you have the Antichrist figure in the the seven-year tribulation. And, you know, during that time, some people will come to worship the beast, as it says. Who? All people except the saved, right? This is a clear difference in the tribulation. You know, if you worship the beast, you now have a sign on your head that literally reads basically unelect. I mean, that only those who are lost will worship the beast and God will protect and preserve his people from doing so. In fact, the tribulation, that's what shows you the difference between the believer and the unbeliever who worships the Antichrist, right? But notice how Revelation 13:8 puts it, who will come to Who's going to do this in the tribulation? Who will actually worship the Antichrist and serve him? Revelation 13, verse 8. It says, speaking about his rise, as he rises to power, it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who's been slain. Did you see that? This is talking about the unelect. Who are the unelect? How are the unelect described here? Who will go on to worship the Antichrist? Well, we, we know from Revelation 3 and several other passages, there's a book of life. You've heard of the book of life? It has names written in it. Whose names are in the book of life? The elect, those whom God chose to save. He, he wrote their names in a book. It's called the book of life. It pops up all over the place, well, relatively in Scripture. The picture is all people deserve judgment. But in God's decree of election in eternity past, those whom he he chose, he thereby wrote in this book of life. He actively wrote down names. The rest, their names were just not written down. Notice the difference, though. There's no book of death. Do you realize that? There's no parallel book of death. Like, okay, God, before he creates, say, I'm going to take these people on you. I'm saving you. You're in the book of life. I'm writing your name here. You people, I'm making you for death. I'm going to write your name in a book of death, and you're done for here here now. There's no book of death. Again, the only point is it's asymmetrical. These are different. And, and what do we learn from the difference? That God, how he relates to the elect and unelect are different. Uh, for the elect, he is actively choosing, calling, intervening, saving. It's the only way they're going to be saved. But the unelect, he passes over, and they destroy themselves, and, and they're, they're judged for their own deeds. And they prepare themselves for destruction. God ordains their future, but they're the cause of their own destruction per their own sin. In fact, notice, for these people whose names are not in the book of life, they're just absent. When judgment comes and they're judged, why are they judged? They're judged for their own sins. Again, God's reprobation is not the efficient cause of their condemnation, their own sin, their own unbelief is the efficient cause. Last passage which, which verifies this, look at Revelation 20. Revelation chapter 20 now. 
Here's that, that great white throne judgment. So it's called at the very end, right before the eternal kingdom. This is that, this uh, final judgment. And you look at the conclusion, and you might, you might have a question. Look at verse 15, the conclusion of this judgment. It says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's uh, similar to what Matthew 25 was talking about. But, okay, so you read this, you might think, wait a second. These lost people, it seems like they're being judged just because their names aren't found. Like, okay, you're not in this book, so off you go. And they're, they're judged simply because they weren't elect. But that's not the full picture. Don't, don't forget the verse that came before it, right? Back in verse 11 and 12. He says in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. In verse 12, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. This is all unbelievers of all time, time, right? They're standing. This is the final judgment. And it says, And books were, pardon me, books were opened. Plural. Books were opened. And then, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there's all these books, and then there's another book, the book of life. And it says, The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. This is the, the picture we get here. The, this book of deeds. The, there's no book of death. It's not a book of death. What, what are these books, plural? It's very clear from the end of verse 12 in the context. It's, it's their deeds. It's, it's a picture of the record of their sins. That this is, this, this is what these people have done in their lives. This is the record book of their sins. You know, Christ paid the penalty and canceled out that certificate of debt, which was hostile to us. Colossians 2 nailed it to the cross, took it away. These people, they rejected Christ. They have no Savior. So that certificate of debt that, that, that is handwritten, that Colossians speaks of, this is it. This is in the book. This is their certificate of debt. This is their sin record. And they've rejected Christ. They have no Savior. And so they're going to have to pay for their debt. It's time to, time to pay. And it's time to collect. And they don't have a Savior. They're not in the book of life. And so they have no savior, but that's not the cause of their condemnation. They're not condemned because they're not in the book of life. They're condemned because they have things in the books. They're, they're condemned because they have sin on record that they must pay for themselves. And in rejecting Christ, well, now they're going to have to pay. They're ultimately judged for their own deed. And isn't that the, the refrain throughout all scripture? That the wicked are judged for their deeds, for what they have done. And, and, and God is just. He's not this, he is not this capricious moral monster who, who makes people evil and, and judges them for what they had no choice but to do and he made them do. The picture is always in, in the duality of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Though he's sovereign in control and ordains all things, man is responsible and is the cause of his own condemnation. And, and so it goes. So to conclude, it's better to speak of God passing over the unelect, like we have been. Whereby he's not actively creating them for evil, but allowing them to choose evil for his purposes. God ordains that the soul that sins shall die. In not choosing them, he is effectively sealing their destiny, but it's still different from God actively choosing them and creating them to be evil and to be doomed. And so we say in this regard, 
Election is not double predestination. These are asymmetrical. These are different decrees of God. Now, I know we've covered a lot today, and it, it still can be challenging for some to wrap your mind around, so I would encourage you to keep mulling it over. But unavoidable in Scripture are some of these conclusions we've reached. That God is sovereign in election and reprobation. That God ordains the future of all, but he does so asymmetrically. That God actively intervenes in the lives lives of the elect and brings them to faith, granting them eternal life. But God does not actively intervene in the lives of the unelect to bring them to unbelief. Rather, they prepare themselves for destruction by their own sin, rebellion, and unbelief. The elect receive free mercy. The unelect receive pure justice. But no one is wronged. And finally, God so works in the lives of all people and all creation for his own glory. In the elect and the unelect, through his mercy, through his justice, he is glorified, and rightly so, for he made all things for his glory. Well, at the end of the day, a good final word. No matter where you stand in your understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation, it is such a huge topic in Scripture, and we've been at it for weeks But as you really get into it, you can finally appreciate Paul's conclusion to his own massive discourse on God's sovereignty and salvation. You know, Romans 9 through 11, the whole chunk where he really gets into like the the heaviest, meatiest doctrines in all the Bible. Romans 9 through 11, it's, it's heavy stuff about God's relationship to Israel and Gentiles and election and reprobation. And after all this teaching, which I hope you can come to appreciate... At the end, though, how does he conclude? And I'll read for you his conclusion of it all in Romans 11, 33 through 36. And he just bursts into doxology. He can't help but just say, to God be the glory for it all. No matter how much you understand. And look, we'll never understand it all. But wherever you're at, hopefully you can say this with Paul as he says, verse 33, his conclusion. He says, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He doesn't finish Romans there, but he finishes that discussion. And and it's a good place for us to finish as well, where at the end of the day, and we want to understand more, we want to know God, but hopefully we can always come away saying, well, God is big, God is supreme, we're not, to him be the glory. And uh, let's, let's do that now. Yeah, it always comes down to that. All right, well, you guys hung in there for almost a whole hour. Good for you. I'm going to pray and we'll be, we'll be done for tonight. This will wrap it up for us. So we're going to leave behind some of this stuff about election and on to some future topics. But uh, I trust and hope this is profitable for you. And let me pray for us for tonight. Our great God in heaven, we have been through uh, quite a few studies on this. These subject matters of, of, of your eternal decree with the elect and unelect. And Lord, these, these, are, these are weighty and lofty truths. And, and, and like Paul said, who has known the mind of the Lord that we can become your counselor? Who are we to sit in judgment of you ever? I know that that's in our fallenness where in the fall, man, the creature wants to be the creator. And in our, in our flesh, we sit in judgment of you all the time, Lord, as if we know better, as if our ways are better. 
but rather, Lord, man's ways lead to death. And your ways are best and your knowledge is supreme. Your wisdom is unsearchable. All we can do is sit in wonder of you and glory in in you, Lord. And and that's what we want to do tonight as we just approach an understanding of of who you are and and how you have made this world and how you deal with this world and, and those whom you've chosen and not. I pray our ultimate response is not just some head knowledge to win some debate, but but to worship and and praise our Creator, who, as we confess by by your mercy, we're those vessels of mercy that prepared beforehand for glory, and we know it, it had nothing to do with us. That it was it was nothing in ourselves that made us worthy. Just your grace and mercy, and and so we take all this with with a uh, you know fear and trepidation. Uh, but thankfulness, Lord, that, that you chose us and, and that you're a choosing God. For we also confess that you know, we all deserved perdition and, and judgment. And only by your mercy any are saved. Anyway, these are lofty truths, Lord. And I pray we continue to meditate on them and, and further behold your glory. That's why you made us and saved us. And so may we render you the glory you are, are due and, and just worship you always. Continue to illumine us and teach us many wonderful things as we move on in, in your word. Again, that we might know you more and glorify you more. Our great God, to you be the glory forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.